we, in our own ability, cannot stand in the face of adversity. We could never find the strength to trust without faith. Because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet, to keep our eyes focused on the King while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy. Faith works. This is the essence of James. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. Without faith. Without works. We too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face. But then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away. But with faith. With works. We stay steadfast on this journey. Progressively sanctified. Knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. Faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment. It's faith that leads us to true religion, not its empty substitute. And it's faith that it's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation with every breath that we breathe. And it will be faith that causes us to worship our God for all eternity. This is the message of James. Faith works. You all are thinking the exact same thing right now, so I want you to say it to me together. You forgot to dismiss the kids. Thank you. All right. So kids, that's your cue. You're out of here. I knew you were all thinking that. My wife leaned over to me and she said, forgot to dismiss the kids. Don came down and said, are we dismissing the kids? And then Oscar said, I know. Oh, well. Oh, well. So we, ha- we had four of our young ladies at camp this week, right? And uh, they've returned. Uh, three of our young men are still with Tim and Janine on their way home from National Youth Conference. They'll be back uh, home hopefully this evening, right? And so I was out in the courtyard at our gathering out there with my coffee and my donut. And uh, Olivia walked by. Prepare yourself for this. It's all good. So, so Oli walked by and I said... So how was camp? It was okay. I said, so what was the highlight of your week? And she looked at me like I was speaking to her in a foreign language. Like, you know, well, she would understand Spanish. I'd have to speak in German. Um, And I said, you know, the the best thing that happened all week. And she said, the dead rattlesnake. (laughs) It's a good thing it was dead, right, Ed? And I said... Tell me more about the rattlesnake. And she said, well, we were having an activity and and there was a rattlesnake there, but the leader killed it. Good. So how did he kill it? With a shovel? So whatever the activity was, a shovel was involved. And And then she says, and then we all got to pet the body of the rattlesnake. Now, I confess, I was hoping for a more spiritual answer to my question about the highlight of camp. But uh, anyway, we prayed all week long for our young people as they were off at camp. And I'm almost afraid to ask any of the rest of them what the highlight was. Uh, I'm hoping the the boys are older. They're a little more mature. No, they're not that mature either. Uh, Oh... Anyway, it's been, a, it's been a good week. I hope you've had a good week. It's good to be back together. And it'll be especially good when Tim and Janine get back because every time Tim goes away, all our technology just goes crazy. So I got up this morning. Was it this morning or last night? I've lost track of time. But um, I was having trouble getting my outline together for this morning, and you'll realize that if you look at my outline in the bulletin. Um, and so I told Lulu, don't worry, I'll print out the outlines, I'll bring them Sunday morning, and we can stuff them in the bullets and it'll all be good. So we're halfway here this morning, and I go, oh no, <laughs> I forgot my bulletin insert. That's okay, I got my computer, we'll print it out, it'll all be good. So, com- 
copy machine jammed. Couldn't get the copy machine to work. Where's Tim? He knows how to fix this copy machine. Anyway, life is kind of like that, right? I have a friend who was serving jury duty this week. And uh, she said something on Facebook about serving jury duty. And one of our mutual friends said to her, So how was jury duty? She says, There's lots of trials. To which her friend responded and said, That sounds like the Christian life. <laughs> lots of trials. And so that's where we've been in our uh, journey in the book of James, talking about trials, troubles, problems, difficulties. And James wants us to understand uh, several important truths about trials. And so we've, we've been looking at that. And I think James and his readers would agree with my friend who said, lots of trials sounds like the Christian life. So I want you to come with me again this morning to James chapter 1 as we continue our journey in this book. And I want to begin and back up and start at verse 1. Oscar assigned to me to read, to preach this morning and teach on verses 9 to 11. And this may surprise some of you, but you can't focus on verses 9 to 11 if you don't understand verses 1 through 8. And so uh, we're going to kind of summarize verses 1 through 8 before we jump into 9 through 11 because you can't, you can't do it. I tried all week. That's why I was so frustrated. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith provides endurance, produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And so I've called this the great equalizer this morning. That one of the things that we understand as we read this passage is that all of us stand as equals in the midst of trials and troubles, right? Regardless your uh, gender, regardless your race, red, white, black, brown, whatever, uh, whatever your, your occupation, your career, whether you go to work to, to press buttons on a keyboard or whether you go to work with your, work with, with your hands, Whatever it is, whatever your station and status in life, when it comes to trials and troubles, it's like this, this, it's level ground. We all experience the same thing. We're all equal in the midst of trials and troubles. People have suggested through the years uh, things that make us equal. Back in the first half of the 19th century, Horace Mann, who was an advocate for education, uh, and instituted a lot of reforms and, and strategies for education that we still use today. I had to laugh when I was researching uh, and studying about him. His goal was to turn unruly children into effective citizens. I guess that's working. Education is not the answer, though, right? Uh, someone else has said that COVID-19 is the great equalizer. Uh, in fact, I read some articles where it was called the Boomer Remover. Because it had a greater impact, impact on the generation that I'm a part of than it did on those that were younger. Equality. Uh, my friend Ed Trenner calls red lights the great equalizers. When we go riding on a group bike ride, there's guys who are really fast and there's guys who are really slow and then there's some in the middle. And so Ed Trenner has always talked about the fact, because he's one of the slower guys at the back and he's forgiven because he's 80, but uh, he would say, you know, red lights are the great equalizer because guys like Rick are racing out in front 
and have to stop at the red light. Do you stop at red lights in Philadelphia? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, uh, red lights are the great equalizer. Ann Landers, the, the famous journalist, advice giver, said, Troubles are the common denominator of the living. And so as we've been traveling with James, talking about trials, troubles, challenges, and difficulties in life, the bottom line truth and what James is trying to tell us is what? You're going to have trouble. There's going to be trials. There's going to be problems. Has that been your life experience? Anybody here lived a pain-free, trouble-free life? You know? Mark, you just raised your hand up there back to adjust the camera, and I saw that arm go up, and I thought, gee, Mark's claiming to be pain-free, trouble-free. No, he's adjusting the camera because Roy doesn't stand still. And so I want you to look first this morning as we look at James. Where have we been? Where have we been in our journey? Well, we've had two messages by Pastor Oscar, last week's message by Pastor Paul. And I want to try to summarize where we've been so we can now focus or then focus on where we're at. And so where we've been can be summarized by some key words that James has used. So in verse 1, he uses the word dispersed. And so he's writing to people who have been scattered, dispersed. God's plan for the believers in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost, God's plan for them that Jesus said was that they were to do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus said as he was preparing to ascend back to heaven, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the plan. What did God's people do? They hung about in their comfort zone in Jerusalem. And so what did God use to push them out? Persecution, that's right. And so now they're dispersed abroad. They've experienced being outcast by their families because of their faith. They've experienced being outcast by the synagogue, the religious and social community. Typically what would have happened was they would have lost the ability to buy and sell because they were considered outcasts because of their faith. very similar thing happens today in the Muslim world when a Muslim comes to faith and puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And so these people are dispersed, and James is writing to them. And the more I've thought about this passage, one of the things that I find kind of amusing is all of the Apostle Paul's letters, with the exception of one, begin with this warm, fuzzy grace and peace to you, to the leaders of the church. Um, I love you. I'm praying for you. How does James begin? Greetings! (laughs) And then he's right into it. And as I've thought about this, I've come to the conviction that James is responding in his letter. He's responding to communication he's received, either by letters or by people who have come and reported to him the experiences of the dispersed believers around the world. And so he's responding to those issues. And it's not a time to be, you know, flowery and grace and mercy and peace and all that good stuff. He's right into it. And so what's the first word that he speaks to them? Consider. Consider it all joy. You see, the greatest need, or one of the greatest needs in the midst of trials, is to have God's perspective and God's viewpoint on trials rather than the way you naturally and normally think. Consider. Take this point of view. Have this perspective. What's the perspective we're supposed to have? Joy. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. My wife and I were talking about joy two or three times this week. Talking about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness depends on Happenings, circumstances, events in your life. So you're happy when you spend your day at the happiest place on earth, right? But you're not happy when you find yourself on the side of the freeway with a flat tire and you discover the tire in the trunk is also flat. 
Circumstances determine happiness. And so as I read this passage and I think about joy, what strikes me is joy is a settled contentment and satisfaction, knowing that God is in control and He's working His plan. Because God is in control in the midst of the circumstances in my life, and because He's working His plan, I can be content and satisfied with what my experience is, regardless, be it good or bad. Joy. I had a conversation this morning with one of you in Pastor Oscar's office, and she was talking about finding joy in the midst of of difficulty and challenge, finding herself in a combative conversation with two other people, and very frustrated in that experience. And so she isolated herself and went into the kitchen to kind of get her thoughts together and talking to the Lord about how how can I find joy in the midst of this circumstance. This is not a happy event, right? Lord, how can I find my joy? And in the midst of that prayer and in the midst of that combative conflict, God gave her an opportunity to share the gospel with one of the two people that she was in combat with. You see, God wants to provide us with joy and opportunity in the midst of conflict. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Endurance. That's a fascinating word. I think of it often in my cycling life because I consider myself an endurance cyclist. I'm not a racer. I'm not trying to ride as fast as I possibly can. I'm in it for the long haul. And so if you were to track me on Strava, where all my bike rides are recorded, you would find that crazy Roy Halberg went out for a 75-mile bike ride today. Yesterday, he was on a 50-mile bike ride. I just, I, I see myself as enduring. The word that James uses here is a fascinating word because it's a combination of two words in the original language. The word under and to remain or to stay. The idea of endurance is that in the midst of trials, in the midst of troubles, I stick it out. I stay under the trials. What do most of us want to do when life gets tough? What's our MO? Bail out. Get away. Escape. Get out from under rather than enduring. We want to avoid problems. We want to avoid difficulty. And I think about this in my own life. I have, I've always had a tendency to kind of look ahead anticipate what the problems are going to be. What are the possible difficulties that are going to rise in the course of whatever I'm doing or where I'm heading? And then I try to figure out how to preclude those problems. Anybody else ever do that in your thought processes? How can I preclude those problems? So, Pastor Oscar tried to talk about this uh, two weeks ago, and uh, one of the things I've been telling him about bike riding is hills... Hills are, yes, they are tough, but hills are your friends. Why are hills your friends? Oh, everyone wants to go downhill. You cannot go downhill until you've gone uphill. Now, I live in the foothills, and I see guys all the time with their bikes in the back of a pickup truck, and they got someone who drives them to the top of the hill, and then they ride down. That, that's not how it's done. Hills are your friends, my friend. Hills are your friends. Downhill moves us along, my friend, but uphill makes us strong. Winds are the same way, right, Oscar? Tailwinds move you along, but headwinds make you strong. So my friend Don Lawrence has this strategy... Because when you ride your bike where I live, no matter where you go, it's uphill all the way back to Laverne. Even when I drive here, I drive here and I'm getting 27, 28 miles a gallon. It's all downhill. When I turn around and go home, I'm getting 22, 23 miles a gallon because it's all uphill. 
And so my friend Don has this strategy in bike riding, because he doesn't like hills, called stair-stepping. So as we make our way back to Laverne, we go up for four or five blocks, so we turn and go across four or five blocks, and we turn and go up. <laughs> you can't do that in Philadelphia. There's no hills. You've got no hills. If you want to climb a hill in Philadelphia, you've got to go over a freeway overpass, because everything else is flat. And so James says the ambition is for us to learn to endure, to remain under. Why is it important to remain under the trial, the difficulty, the challenge, the difficulty? Why is that important? What does the passage say? He tells us why it's important. Because God's goal is to make you and me perfect, mature, complete. God's goal is that, and this is where James wraps his whole book around this thought right here. God's goal for you and for me is that we would have a fully integrated life where the way that we live our lives are consistent with God's truth. The way you speak, the way you act, the way you treat people, the way you deal financially in your life, Consistent with God's truth. God's goal that James addresses here is that he wants to make us perfect, mature, whole, complete. Lacking, what's that next word? Nothing. That's the goal. That's the perspective that we need to have. Consider it all joy because the trials and the troubles are going to produce endurance, which brings us to maturity. He then says in verse 5, ask. If you lack wisdom, how do you get wisdom? Where do you find it? God is the fountain, the source of all wisdom. But James isn't talking about asking for wisdom in a broad general sense. He's saying, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, ask God for wisdom. Why do you need God's wisdom? Wisdom in the midst of trials. His wisdom is perfect. The reason you need God's wisdom and I need God's wisdom in the midst of trials is because we don't have God's perspective. And because we don't have God's perspective, we ask all the wrong questions. So we experience a trial in our life, a difficulty, a problem, and our response is to ask what question? Why? Why me? Why now? What did I do to deserve this? We ask all the wrong questions. Is God capable of answering the why questions? Yes. Does God answer the why question? Not always. That's my life experience. He doesn't always answer the why questions. So if we're asking all the wrong questions and we need God's wisdom, His skill to live a godly life that is integrated and consistent with His truth, if we ask for His wisdom, then what kind of questions am I asking? Well, good questions. Yeah, so what would be a good question? If God's goal for you and me is to transform us to be more like Jesus as we endure and become more mature and complete, the question we should be asking ourselves in the midst of trials is what? What, Lord, are you trying to teach me? What is it I need to discover in my life that needs to be adjusted, modified, changed, as I become more and more like Jesus. We need to learn to ask the right questions, and we're not naturally driven to do that. At least I'm not. That's not my first response, to ask those kind of questions. Paul says in uh, Romans 8.28, verse we all know, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Amazingly so, verse 29 follows verse 28. 
And verse 28 says that those that He's foreknown and predestined, that they might be conformed to the image of His Son. What's God's goal in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life? To make me more like Jesus. To make you more like Jesus. The more like Jesus I am, the more like Jesus you are, the more effective our ministry is going to be on this planet, right? And so that's, that's God's goal. So we need to be asking for His wisdom. Flowing out of all of this understanding about trials, now James introduces to us two seemingly paradoxical statements. He says, the guy who's poor needs to rejoice and boast and celebrate about his high position. One translation says his exaltation. Another translation says the fact that God has honored him. So the rich guy or the poor guy is supposed to celebrate and boast and brag about his high position. And the rich guy is supposed to boast and brag and celebrate about his humiliation, his low position. And so I think what James is trying to speak to here is the fact that, again, this idea of equality, be you, wherever you are on the economic scale of life, when you face trials and challenges, there's different ways that you respond. The temptation for the guy who is poor, who lacks the basic necessities of life, what would those basic necessities be? Enough food to eat? Shelter, a place to live? Adequate clothing, those are basic needs. But the poor guy, now remember, these, these people have left Jerusalem where they had families supporting them, families around them. These people have left Jerusalem where they had jobs, sources of income. Whether they were a, a, a merchant who was making and repairing shoes, or whether he was a farmer producing a crop that he could sell. Whatever it was, that's all been left behind. All the things that he's counted on for the basic necessities of life. And now he's dispersed, scattered, cut off from all of that. And James says to that poor guy, celebrate, rejoice, brag about your high position. And as you think about that, you say, high position? How does the poor guy who lacks the necessities of life have anything even close to a high position to celebrate? How is that possible? Well, if you take your little eyeballs and run them across the page to verse 5 of chapter 2. By the way, James keeps coming back to this rich and poor thing. At least five times I've counted in the book of James. He circles back to talk about the rich and the poor. Seems like that's a problem in the community of the dispersed. But he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So on a scale of 1 to 10, how rich are the poor? Big 10, maybe a 12 or a 15. You see, for the poor guy, his temptation in the midst of the trials and troubles and struggles of life, his temptation is to find and figure out a way to solve that problem without including God in the equation. So if you're poor and you don't have enough food, you don't have a place to stay, how do you solve that problem without including God in the equation. You steal from others. You find other ways to acquire the things that you think you need. That's their temptation. In fact, in Proverbs, there's a passage that says, Lord, uh, don't make me so poor that I'm I'm tempted to, to steal and rob. 
But on the other hand, don't make me so rich that I don't depend on you. Because the rich guy has a temptation, too, to operate and live outside the parameters of God's care. By the way, who's your provider? God's your provider. Not your job. Not your boss. Not your bank account. Not your IRA. Well, that's pretty obvious right now. Did you get your monthly statement? Yeah. Who's your provider? God. God's your provider. And so for the poor guy who's tempted to work around and solve the, the problems of life without including God in the equation, he needs to focus on his high exalted position. Does the Bible ever describe for you and for me the high exalted position that we have in Christ? Ever? Once or twice? So, for example, if you turn just two or three pages to 1 Peter chapter 1, in, in, in 1 Peter, Peter's also talking to people that are suffering and, and struggling. And beginning in verse 3, 1 Peter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... I'm going to read it a little differently, so you'll have to kind of tolerate and figure this out. But you'll figure out my point, I hope, quickly. Who, according to His great mercy, has caused Roy to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for Roy, who is protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. Uh, Roy has been distressed by various trials. That the proof of Roy's faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus this morning as your Savior, you put your first name in all the places where I read mine, because that is your high, exalted position. If you have no possessions on this planet, you have no home, no car, no job, you still have a high exalted position of spiritual resources, right? Paul does the same thing for us in Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. You probably hear me say that phrase way too many times. i got lots of favorite chapters. In Ephesians chapter 1... After Paul does his greeting thing that James doesn't do. In verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed Roy with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Can you read that with me with with your first name out loud? Who has blessed Roy with... I didn't hear too many other names besides Roy. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is that truth? Have you been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Absolutely. And then he goes on to kind of enumerate what those blessings are. Just as he chose Roy in him before the foundation of the world, that Roy should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined Roy to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on who? Roy. No, say your first name. There you go, Ed. On Roy in the Beloved. In Him, Roy has redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon Roy in all wisdom and insight. He made known to Roy the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things upon the earth. Also, we have obtained, Roy has obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose 
who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ, that's Roy, should be to the praise of his glory. You see, even the poorest of the poor, who is a follower of Jesus, has this massive pile of spiritual resources. And someone else besides Rick could say amen to that, I hope. You know, wow. And so the temptation for the poor guy is to work outside of God's parameters, perhaps stealing, maybe other ways. To the rich guy, he says, the rich guy should boast or brag, be proud in an appropriate way, of his what? Poverty. Or, James says, his humiliation. One of the translations to be consistent with the, low, the high position of the poor, says the rich should brag about his low position. And you think to yourself as you read those words, what could possibly happen in the life of a super rich person that would qualify for the words low position? Right? We were sitting eating dinner. The other night up in Oxnard, a little Mexican restaurant in the harbor, looking out over uh, all, the, all the boats, all the little mini yachts, all the, all the, all the boats parked in, in the harbor. And after dinner, we went and walked. And we walked quite a ways, all, all, lines and lines and lines of boats. And I thought, I wonder how many millions of dollars are sitting right there, just sitting get used once or twice a month, maybe, I don't know. What could possibly cause the, the uber-rich with all these material resources to be viewed as having a low position? Well, what would the temptation be in the midst of the trials and troubles of life? What would the temptation be for the rich guy Talk about the poor guy. His temptation is to go steal and work outside of God's plan. But what's the temptation for the rich guy? <laughs> you are more cynical than I can even imagine. The temptation for the rich guy is to trust and depend on his material wealth. And that's why James says about that material wealth, what? It's, it's like the flower, the, the grass. It's like the flower. Sun's going to come out, the, the winds are going to blow, and it's going to fade away. And it, I love the way James says it because he concludes verse 11. And he says, the rich dude is going to fade away in the midst of his activities. In the midst of the, the busyness, the money-making efforts, he's going to pass away. <clears throat> I have a friend who, 25, 26 years ago, his wife was diagnosed with a very rare, very aggressive form of cancer. And he was on the the search to find out everything he could about this cancer, what could be done, what cures were available. And uh, though I wouldn't consider him to be uber rich, he had means, he had wealth. And so he tried everything he discovered in his research. Every medication that was on the market, every possible thing that would help, everything. Even uh, spent time out of the country finding other alternate resources, other sources of medicine, other uh, doctors and opinions, spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And I admire him for what he did because he, he loved his wife. But ultimately she died. The temptation for the person with all those material resources is to count on them and trust in them. Thankfully, my friend had spiritual perspective alongside of that. But James says, the resources that you have in the midst of difficulty, trouble, crisis, trial, challenge, whatever words you like to use, 
The resources that you have, that you should be counting on, that you should be depending on, are not your bank account, are not your IRA. It's not your material wealth and possessions. What you should be counting on and depending on and leaning on and resting on is what? Spiritual resources. And faith is the whole point of this book of James. Faith works. That's what James is after. We're, we're all on a level playing field. Be you rich or poor, brown, white, black, yellow, green, you know, whatever. We all experience trials, right? And God has a common plan for each one of us. And we need to be on guard. I don't know where you see yourself on the scale of rich or poor. Frankly, in this country, we're all rich, right? Compared to so many other parts of the world. But regardless where you think of yourself on that scale, I don't have a yacht in the harbor in Oxnard, for example. But wherever you are on that scale, in the midst of trials and troubles, our focus should be on our spiritual resources, not on the material ones. And because we live in a very affluent culture, we have a tendency always to depend on those material resources rather than trusting the Lord. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, that you might be complete, lacking nothing. And if you lack wisdom, ask. God gives freely. He doesn't withhold. Aren't you glad for that? And be you rich or poor? Our call is to hang in there. To endure. So where are we today? Where are you today? I thought about this a lot as I've reflected on this passage over recent weeks. We all experience trials. <laughs> if you're not going through a trial today, cheer up, you will, right? Gallant jury duty said it well. Lots of trials. Um, are, in which riches are you trusting today? Which riches have your focus? You know, the last two quarters, I have allowed the statement coming about my IRA to sit for several days. <laughs> I don't want to know. And each of those quarters, I finally broke down and said, okay, I'll look. Yeah, big, big mistake. Yeah, good decision. Never look. And I've just been reminded afresh, you know, I've been celebrating the rise of, of my IRA over the last several years. You know, the, the, the monies that I've been allowed to, to put into that have grown and multiplied, and they're looking really good. And, and now they're doing this. James says it's foolish. In fact, if, if we took time to read James 5, he says, it's all going to rot. It's all going to rot. Where's my trust? Where's my focus? Have you taken God's point of view and embraced your trial as God's plan and purpose for you? Have you found the joy of a settled spirit, content and satisfied that God's in control and He's working His plan? Is that where you're at today? And so I wrote three things to myself. Decide today... Choose God's point of view. Decide today. Choose God's point of view. The trials, the troubles, the challenges of life are intended to produce endurance because God is molding and shaping me to be more like Jesus. Choose to adopt that point of view. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. 
And then ask Him for the necessary wisdom that you need because you ain't got the right perspective. You ain't got the wisdom unless God gives it. Ask God. And then thank Him for the spiritual riches that He has blessed you with. Are you thankful for the spiritual riches that God has blessed you with? Some of you know, not all of you know, the journey that uh, my wife and I have been on for the last four years. She had a doctor who tripled uh, medication that she was on. She had been on this same dosage, same medication for decades. And this doctor just decided to triple the medication. One of the major side effects of this medication is memory loss. And so we've been on, I think, almost a five-year journey. I've kind of lost track. I'll say four years of progressive memory loss. And so um, it's frustrating for both of us. It's annoying for both of us. It's irritating at times for both of us. Um, It is a challenging trial in our lives. Some of you have dealt with um, family members or friends maybe that have dementia, memory loss of of different kinds. And so so you you probably have experienced this and can identify with a little bit of our journey. Um, Don't tell her I told you this, but we have the same conversation three or four times a day. Uh, Sometimes we have the same conversation three or four times in less than 15 minutes. Um, She has difficulty remembering names. Um, (laughs) We were in Sacramento this last week. I was officiating a funeral service for a family that was in my church when I pastored there 40 years ago. And uh, in the course of the days that we were there, she probably asked me the names of the two sons um, a dozen times. The, the, the short-term memory is, is very difficult. Long-term memory isn't much better. It is one of those various kinds of trials that God has called us into to endure, to remain under. And sadly, in my 50 years of pastoral ministry, I've observed... Um, People that have abandoned spouses because of health issues. People that have abandoned spouses because of something that has happened to a child, one of their children, not remaining under. And sadly, that that happens with Christians, not just non-Christians. Why does that happen? We don't have God's perspective. God's point of view when it comes to trials. And so, we had the opportunity to go to Sacramento, as I said, for this uh, funeral service. And uh, I just decided, since we're out of town, we're going to stay out of town. And so we spent all week, just the two of us, after we left the service there in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, it, it was a great time just being together. But it was a time also of kind of reaffirming the reality that this this memory loss stuff is hard. It's difficult. And so I I come to this portion of James um, with a a heart and a desire to learn what does God have for me in this passage? And more importantly, what does God want to produce in my life and in my wife's life through this time of trial, this time of challenge, this time of trusting? What are the qualities God wants to develop or deepen in my life and in my wife's life? And I'm getting some insight on that. I'm getting some, some, some clues to what God's up to and what He's after. But I'm not asking why. We've prayed for a time, uh, Lord, you can heal. You're fully capable of healing. You could heal in an instant of time. You could use these doctors. We've been to so many neurologists, I can't count them anymore. Um, 
Lord, you could, you, could, you could bring healing in a variety of ways. And then we shifted our praying. Lord, your will be done. Whatever you do. And then we'd shift back and pray for healing. <laughs> shift back, Lord, your will be done. But in the midst of it all, the message of James is what? Consider it all joy. Find a settled contentment and satisfaction knowing God's in control and He's working His plan. And that's true in my life. It's true in Andrea's life. And it's true in your life. Wherever you are today in this thing of trials and troubles, whatever it is you've wrestled with, things in the past, things present, God has a very simple plan for you and me. He wants you to be more like Jesus tomorrow than you are right now. And so, Lord, that's our prayer this morning. That you would mold us, shape us, transform us. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to love people the way Jesus loved. Help us to help people the way Jesus helped others. Help us, Lord, to speak as Jesus spoke. Help us to live lives that are consistent with the truth of your word. Lord, help us to make an impact in the world in which we live. As others watch us, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our challenges, as others watch us responding, reacting, might you use us in the midst of those challenges to touch and influence others for the kingdom. The people might be drawn to know Jesus because they see Him in us. Thank you for doing that, Lord, because we certainly aren't capable of doing it on our own. Thank you for doing that for us. And we give you thanks for those spiritual resources that we can draw upon. Amen.